We started something last week talking about the concept of balance. Balance is just a crucial aspect of life, about thinking, about our behavior. We talked about it in terms of if you think of pictures of balance, like a seesaw or a scale, what makes one end go up and another go, goes down depends on where you place the weight. And if we think about weight in terms of importance or priority in one's life, where we tend to place a greater deal of deference or important in a certain ideal, it's going to reflect itself in the way that I think and speak and even behave. And so we're talking just for a while, Lord willing, in the next couple of lessons about this idea of being balanced in our beliefs and thus balanced in the way that we live. And so last week we talked about a balanced faith, that faith is not just what we know to be true, but it is knowledge that's demonstrated through what we do, through our actions. Today I want us to look at a balanced heart, uh, the thinking that exists in every one of us, and every single person who is here this morning, this balance, or maybe imbalance, is within us. And I want to show it and explain it and walk through it together with you. Here's our challenge when it comes to the subject of balance. Oftentimes, instead of finding our way to that middle point, an equilibrium, we tend to drift from extreme to extreme, like that swinging pendulum. We go from one side to the other. And that's true with today's topic. Here's what we're going to look at today. On one side, you have conviction, truth, law-keeping, obedience, anything you might put in that kind of vein or thought or way of thinking. On the other side, you have love and mercy and grace, compassion and service. Two very different mindsets, and yet when you look at both of them, especially for a long time within God's people, even within us, they kind of tend to be at odds with one another. And it's not just true to hear. If you think about this in other areas of life, preachers struggle with this. I'll just say it as a preacher. It's, it's a hard balance. Because Paul says that we are to preach the word. It's a message to the young preacher, Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now, you know what he's saying here. Some things you're going to say are going to be really hard. You're reproving them. There's a corrective tone to the teaching you're giving. And in some things, you're positive. You're exhorting them and encouraging them. But you know, there's got to be a balance. And sometimes we don't do that very well. Sometimes we tend to be more reproving than we ought to. And most of our sermons kind of tend to take on a certain tone. Or sometimes we may be a little too exhorting and we need to talk about things more serious. And so finding that balance can be hard. If you're a parent, you understand this. There are times with children, and you wonder, is this a moment where I need to extend more grace, and a little more patience, or is this a moment I need to hold down the law, and I need to enforce things that we've taught, and there's that wrestling within us. So I think we can appreciate this is not as easy as it might look on the screen. The reason we had to find the balance is that as our goal, our God-given goal, Romans 8:29, to be more like Jesus, that's who he is. Jesus is the perfect blending of love and law or of truth and grace the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father notice he is the fullness of grace and truth if i want to be like jesus there's going to be within me a good balance of both grace and truth not one or the other so what i want to do this morning you got your notes i just kind of want to look at both sides the ideals of those who maybe lean a little heavier on truth and then those on the side of grace 
and then talk this morning about how we can take a step towards being more balanced. Because here's the reality. I believe right now, even at the outset, before explaining this, we know where we tend to lean a little heavier in this balance or in this discussion. I think we know within ourselves where we tend to place a little greater weight, and that's going to be our challenge. Uh, being honest with ourselves and honest with the Scripture and seeing how we can be more balanced in the way we think relating to these thoughts. So let's start with on the side of law. Those who tend to place maybe a greater emphasis on law. And here's how we might define them. I'm going to paint with a big, broad brush. And so if it seems like maybe it's a little too broad, that's on purpose. We're just going to try and broadly describe both sides. On the side of law... Their strength is doctrine. They know the Word of God. They can give you book, chapter, and verse. They know this law. They love the law. They teach the law. They defend the law, the truth. I mean, God's Word is truth, John 17 and verse 17. And so they know the Word of God. And it's not just that they know it, and they teach it, and they love it, and they defend it. They also take seriously what Jude says, and that is they're willing to contend for the truth. So they're not going to let false teaching slide that they're going to stand up for what they know the Word of God to teach, and to do so, even if how they do so may be unloving, or unkind, or unmerciful, a bit rude and crass. Because oftentimes, those who lean heavy on this side of the discussion tend to be those who are quick to judge. Uh, those who often lack patience with others and their understanding. Why don't you get this? Why, why don't you understand? Why don't we see things eye to eye? Why don't you agree with me and agree with our understanding of the text? And often there's a rigidness to them. That if it's not here, if you don't understand it, it's black and white, and there's no room for any kind of discussion on the matter. And oftentimes there's just not a lot of grace given within those who lean this way. It's truth. Truth is what matters. And we're going to hold the truth, teach the truth, and if you don't get it, get out. Broadly painted. On the side of love, you have those whose strength is love. I mean, their strength is service and compassion and, and caring for others. Their, their main motivation, which drives them, is that command that Jesus said to love your neighbor with, with all that you are, just as you love yourself, right? You love your neighbor with that same kind of selfless, compassionate love that you would pour towards taking care of your own self. And in fact, it's a love that's demonstrated, going back to Jude, with great patience or mercy, having mercy on those who are struggling with their, with their walk with God. And so those who may lean on, this, lean on this side define discipleship. If the one side might define discipleship as knowing and teaching and holding to the truth, this side might define discipleship as what we do, serving and caring and tending to the needs of others, even if how I show that service, if I go about doing that service, it's not necessarily taught in Scripture. Even if how we as a local congregation go about serving others is without any kind of authority, any kind of example within the Scripture, because God's command, Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves is more important than the command about how do you organize a church, about how you worship as a church, about what you do in your work as a church. So we have two mindsets. And again, I, I don't mean to be unfair. I mean to kind of paint it broadly with some extreme 
descriptions to help us try and see maybe a balanced view of the greater discussion. Two sides, how do we try and reconcile these two ways of thinking, right? I didn't put that up there. Maybe the weakest, quick to rationalize service that's just, that's just not authorized. Quick to rationalize and think that this is okay because the ends justify the means. It's better for us to do good even if how we got there is not what the Bible teaches. How do we take a step? Well, here's a couple things to think about just off the get-go, just to get started. First of which is that both sides are important to God. Both those who lean on the side of truth and those who lean on the side of love, both those sides are important to God because both of them are commanded by God. Love and law are commanded by God. And so we'll find a statement like in Hebrews 5 verse 9 that, that Jesus, having been made perfect, became to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. You notice that, that Jesus is a source of salvation to those who obey him. What's obeying him seem to imply? Well, there's some kind of law. There's some kind of guidance that Jesus wants us to adhere to. But we also have statements like Galatians 6 and verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So both are commanded, right? Follow me, right? Obey Jesus as your source of salvation, and then serve. Do good to all, to all men. You also see where both are woven together in statements like John 14, 15. That if you love me, you will keep my commandments. They're not interchangeable, right? It's not like you have two different components here. They're the same. If I love God, I'm going to demonstrate that love through doing what he says. There's also a statement given in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, when he says, Since you have, notice, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Do you hear? Do you see it together? Since you obeyed and you obeyed the truth, what does that truth produce and prompt out of us? Well, a willingness to serve, a willingness to love. You see the two that are interchangeably used. In fact, Jesus would use both of these, those who follow the truth and those who are moved and motivated by love, he uses both of them to define his people as identifying markers of his people. And so we have in John 18, verse 37, when Pilate says to Jesus, so, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Notice, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What's he saying? Well, those who follow the truth listen to me, and by listening to me, it's a way of saying they follow me. They do what I say. It's an identifying marker. Those who listen to truth follow truth. But we also have statements, you may know this one, like from John 13, where he says, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So both of them are used to identify people as God's people. Can I get the picture? We're putting all, all this is commanded by God. We also see that both of these are illustrated. There's two statements really unique. They're very similar to one another, but they're thousands of years apart from each other. There's one in the Old Testament when King Saul is given the command by God, I want you to go and destroy all of the Amalekites. And King Saul says, great, I will do that. And then he goes and does kind of it, part of it. He kills most of the Amalekites, but he keeps the king alive and some of the best animals. And when Samuel the prophet comes to Saul, Saul's all boastful, like, I did what the Lord told me to do. In fact, I want to build a statue of myself to show how good I was. And Samuel's response is, if you obeyed the Lord, then why am I hearing some sheep? Why am I seeing a king that's alive? 
Saul's response is, well, I kept them alive to worship God. Like, I, I know God said destroy them, but I kept them alive in order to offer them as worship to the Lord. And here's our statement. Samuel says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Does God just want you to worship him and live a life that's completely disobedient to his will? That's not what God wants. He doesn't want empty worship. He wants you to follow him. Okay? Get that language in your mind. Because there's a time in the New Testament when Jesus and his apostles are on the move, as they typically were. They get hungry, and they pick some grain because they're hungry, and all oh, the Pharisees come loose. Because the Pharisees had this tradition that if you're going to eat, you had to do a special kind of washing, cleansing. That wasn't in the law. It was their tradition. And so when they saw the apostles pick some grain and eat it, they thought, oh, hold on now. Whose law are you really following? And this is one of the things that Jesus says in this context. He said, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Do you kind of hear some similarities between those statements? And do you see what God has been saying all along the way? Jesus is quoting from Hosea, the prophet Hosea. Here's what God is saying. I don't just want empty sacrifice. If you think you're going to come and worship me and that makes everything okay, you've missed it. I want you to obey me, and in obeying me, I want you to have love and compassion towards others. And both sides, if you think you can just bring a lamb or a ram and everything's okay, when your heart is cold and careless or your life is disobedient, then you've missed what it means to be with God or walking with God. So both of them are illustrated. Now, here's the other side of this. Both are necessary to be right. Now, let's get here real quick. We need to clarify something because even in our minds, we do this. So let's stop from doing it. One of the ways we think often when this discussion comes is this. You know, if I have to choose one, if I just have to choose one of these, then at least I would rather lean on the side of... If if I just had to choose one of these, I I would rather err on the side of grace than on law. If I had to choose one of these, I'd rather stand with the truth and maybe do so a little harsh and unloving. But here's the reality. In that way of thinking, even if I have law and no love, or love and no law, I'm still wrong. I need both of these in order to have each other. I'll show in a moment. You can't have law without love and love without law. But I need both of them to be right with the Lord. Let's just look at this and how we can illustrate this. In the feast, actually, let's go back to we have a revelation. I was right here open to us. In Revelation chapter 2, we find two churches that tended to lean one way or the other. In fact, one of my favorite lessons from Ricky Jay comes right out of this idea and this concept of churches and mindsets and the way that they think and the way that Jesus wants them to think. And so in Revelation 2, the very first church that Jesus writes a letter to is a church in Ephesus, and they are known in verse 2. Notice, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and I'm not grown weary. There's truth. I mean, you got false teachers coming in, and you're like, not here, not in Ephesus. Mm. 
you want to claim to be an apostle and you don't have the truth, you're not making it a step in our doors. But, in verse 4, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Therefore, repent from where you have fallen. Repent, remember where you've fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. All right, keep that in mind and go down a little bit. Because two churches later, starting down in verse 12, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Pergamum. And in verse 13 of Revelation 2, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and that you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. And so you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's a church that was really loving and very welcoming. In fact, anyone was welcome in their midst, even to the point where they had some who were teaching things that were false, and they didn't do anything about it. Here's the thing. There were some strong on law, they held to the truth, they defended the truth, and yet they were missing love, and Jesus says, repent, you, you have to change. And here's a church who's really loving, and they're allowing anyone to come in, no matter what it is they teach or believe, and Jesus says, you, you need to repent, you need to change. Both are wrong. Both needed to make a change. Look at it this way, we had it on the screen. As soon as we change this verse, everything changes. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Notice how these two concepts depend on each other. If I do this, but speaking in love, I'm going to be really nice about it. It may not be true. It's going to make you feel good. I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to say something that's going to make you feel great, even if it may not be absolutely true. You realize if I'm saying something that's a lie or deceitful, that's not loving. That's not actually loving someone. But then if I do this, but speaking the truth, no matter how you do it, I'm going to cram it down their throat. I'm going to be James and John 2.0 and call down the fires of heaven and send you with the gospel message. Well, that truth, tells me to love. Speaking the truth without love betrays the truth I'm speaking. You see? I can't have one without the other. Let's look at this another way. Jude 25. I want you to notice two statements giving about our relationship with Jesus right here in Jude 25. To the only God, notice, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you notice that language? Our Savior, our Lord. The glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now forever. Amen. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our Lord. If I see Jesus only as my Lord and not as my Savior, I'm going to lean really heavy on me to save me. Look at Luke 18. Jesus told a story, a parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. 
If I see Jesus only as a Lord and not as a Savior, then I'm the one, by my obedience, by my good deeds, by what I've done, I'm just going to save myself. Look how righteous I am because of the life I'm living. I don't need a Savior, right? Look at how good, look at how perfectly I'm obeying the Lord. Do you see the imbalance? But at the same time, if I only see Jesus as a Savior and not as a Lord, I'm not going to do what he says. Saviors we depend on. Lords we surrender to, we submit to, we obey. I have to have both. Without a balanced view, I'm not going to have a right understanding of who Jesus is in the right walk before him. Let's look at one another. Matthew 25, we look at this often when it comes to the importance of service because Jesus puts service in a context of judgment, the final judgment. That wakes us up. If Jesus says, here when you stand before me at the end of time and you stand before the throne of God and this is what's going to be on the table, that catches our attention. Because in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And their response is, when, when did we do this? We never saw you this way. When did we do this? And he says, to the extent you did so, to the least of these, you did it to me. Stop for a moment, brethren. If Jesus says at the final judgment, this is going to be a consideration, it matters. This matters. My compassion and my service to those around me who are in need matters to God. But this is not the only picture of judgment that Jesus gives us. Here's love in the context of judgment. But he's also given us this picture. That not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father will enter. Many will say to me, on that day, do you see how he's kind of painting the same picture? On that day, Lord, did, did, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so here's some on the last day, and they're saying, we did a lot of good deeds. We did a lot of good service. And the Lord's saying, you might have done a lot of good deeds, but you didn't do my deeds. Lawlessness. You didn't follow my commands. Both of them are put in the context of what is to come. Both of them are important. Maybe for the case of exhaustion, let's do one more. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching and has both the Father and the Son. The claim to be in a right relationship with God, ignoring his word, is absolutely false. If I want to be right with God, I have to follow his words. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I cannot be wrong with my brethren. I cannot be at odds with my neighbor and be right with my God. Both are necessary. Can we see? That's why this is so important. That's why all of this is so important for all of us. So again, let's come back to where we're going to draw this to a head. I know where I lean. I really do. I know where I lean. I know where I have leaned. And in fact, to be honest with you, there are times in my life where I leaned one way, and then that pendulum swung another way. So I know where I am on this discussion. And I would imagine that you likely know where you are too, where you maybe tend to lean a little heavier than another. So here's how we find ourselves in a greater balance. 
if maybe for me I'm heavy on the law, I need to take a step towards love. Remember, Jesus says, or Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, that if I don't have love, I'm kind of like a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. In fact, he says that if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And I need to remember that. Well, look at all the good that I've done. Look at all the knowledge I've gained. Look at all the ways I'm serving God. If I don't have love, I don't have anything. I have nothing to lean on, nothing to stand on if I don't have love. And here's where I believe many of us are. I think for a lot of us, our context goes back here. The most of the places and the churches and the thinking that we're familiar with lines up here. Very heavy on doctrine and law and obedience, but not a great deal of emphasis placed on mercy and on grace. Think of all the pictures that Jesus told in Scripture to show this. The prophet Jonah, immensely unmerciful, couldn't understand why God would want to extend grace to his enemies. Think of all the stories that Jesus told that show this. That servant who received the amazing gift of forgiveness from the impossible debt from the king and then wasn't willing to do the same thing for a servant he met. Or the older brother in Luke 15 who was unwilling to welcome his younger son or his younger brother home. Here's a reminder. It's worth writing down. It's worth thinking about. It's worth some very serious contemplation, brethren. It is possible that I can be right doctrinally and wrong attitudinally. I can be right by the book and wrong in my heart. I, I can have all the right answers. I, I can be worshiping God the right way. I could be knowing exactly what this book says, but I can still be wrong. And that goes back to my heart. Luke 18 and verse 11 reminds us that my rightness before God does not depend on being more right than my neighbor. We really have to be careful about this. The Pharisee in this story was standing by himself and prayed, Thus, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. My rightness before God is not where at least I'm better than my neighbor. At least on Sunday morning, I know where I'm going to worship today. That doesn't make me right with God, being more right than my neighbor. My rightness is depending on my walk with my God. That's where it ends. That's where it begins. It's also worth reminding in this vein of thinking, for those who lean heavy on the law, that God's people are not merely defined by what they stand against or what they don't do. We are defined by who we are and thus what we do. That love is not merely some kind of a theological discussion and service is not something merely we preach on and study on. Love is demonstrated in what we do. So what good is it to sing about love and to preach on love and yet, as John says, to have everything needed to show that love and do nothing with it? Whoever has the world's goods and thus beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Well, we sing a lot about love, and we may know every Greek word for love in the New Testament and be able to show every word it's used, but am I showing love to my neighbors, to the world, to those who are in need? That's a greater question. You may know the difference between agape and phileo and all these things, but do you, do you show that love? You know, the two things that Paul says about love, there's a lot he says it's not. But when he says there's two things love is, he says love is patient and love is kind. And for those who tend to lean kind of heavy on the side of the law, that's, that's, a, that's an important reminder. 
Love is patient. Which means when others are not there right now, when others are struggling with their attitude, when others are struggling with the Word of God and they're kind of bucking up back against it, you know, questioning authority and patterns and why we're doing things, love is patient. Love is patient. Instead of just getting out the cannons and blasting those who don't agree with me, if we just give people time, if we give people opportunities to learn, if we give them a chance to express their heart wherever they are, and we work with them and we teach them and we help them and we mentor them, if we had more of those moments, we're going to have more of what looks like in Acts 18 where there was a preacher who didn't have the whole truth and when pulled aside and told the truth, he listened and responded and went out to continue to preach the whole truth. That's Apollos, and that's what we want. I don't want to end, to cripple everyone who just simply doesn't believe what I believe or isn't there today. I may need a great deal of patience with one another, understanding that if given time, if given opportunity, if giving teaching, they may not be here today, and I may not like the things they're saying today. But if I just calm down in time and in opportunity, they'll change. Which is why Jude would say, here's the thing, Jude who says, contend for the faith, we draw our swords, we're like, let's go, ends the book by saying, and be merciful on those who doubt. Careful. We can still do both. We can stand up for the faith and yet not swing swords at everyone who doubts in their faith. Moms and dads, this is really important for us. If our kids say, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure I believe in God. It's like, hold on, I'm calling Ricky right now. We're going to have him over here right now at the middle of the night and sprinkle some holy water on you and get this. We're, we're calming down a little bit. We're going to talk this through. We're going to have mercy on those on the journey of faith and their understanding. Yes, at the end of the day, brethren, if I've received such incredible mercy and grace and patience from God, that's got to be what it is I extend to those around me. Even to those who have left. To those who have wandered away, who have chosen sin over God. Yep, we follow God's pattern. We follow God's example about withdrawing fellowship and all of those things. But it never means that we just let them go. It never means that we just forget them, that move on past them. That we continue to pray and we continue to reach and we continue to teach. So that if maybe through me, through God allowing open doors, maybe through me and my actions, I could be the one to help this person come back to the Lord. Because God's never given up on me, and I want that said of me too. That at least I tried everything completely possible to help this soul be right with him. And I need to be reminded of that. Truth is not necessarily always going to lead me that way. Love needs to be something that touches my heart to continue to reach to those who are struggling in their faith. Now, to those who are heavy on love. I really love people. I'm touched with compassion, and that is a beautiful and a wonderful principle. And that service-minded heart needs to continue. The last thing we are not saying is stop serving. Stop helping people. That's not at all what it is. But here's the reality. Those who tend to lean heavy on love tend to wrestle with God's law, specifically God's law for his church. And so we kind of forget that at the end of the day, we're not the head of this church. We're not the head of this collection. Christ is the head. It says in Ephesians 1 verse 22 that he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head and Christ has laws. Laws for his church. 
In fact, I read this this week. I think this just kind of defines it better than what I could put it in my own words. Christ is lost for his church, and it's important to follow. The verse here is 1 John 3 and verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. The world hates you. Jesus said this often. They will hate you because they hate me. They will hate the light because they love the darkness. If you follow Jesus, the world will not invite you, include you, like you, or want you. The world hates you. And yet, what mystifies us is that we've not done anything to the world. We're kind, we're generous, we're servants, we're helpful. We make the world a better place, a brighter place. And if anything, you would think the world would would like having disciples around, but that's not the way it is. The innocent, much like Abel, are hated and killed because the world hates them. While these thoughts are nothing new, the unnatural conclusions make some things clear. First of all, some are wanting to make the church more community-friendly. They want to serve the community. The modern church has done that for decades, ignoring the Bible pattern for what the church is to do. They fed the hungry. They clothed the needy. They educated children. They helped with taxes. They run shelters. They offered fitness training. And they've done all that they could to make the community like them. They offer free coffee and babysitting and have backed off on offensive words like sin, hell, and judgment. The crowds come and they laugh and they feel good and they're convinced that the rough edges of doctrine have been smoothed off. The leaders have found a way to make the church and the world seem to like each other and maybe one day there'll be a wedding. But what's missing is these bold statements found throughout the New Testament. The world hates you. And so rather than trying to get the world to move closer to the cross, moderns have moved the church closer to the world. There's no accountability. The distinctive lines between the world and Christ have become blurred. A merger has taken place, and to accomplish this, a whole lot of compromising has been done. And it isn't the world that's moving or changing. It's the modern church that has shifted, and a shift that's been away from the cross and towards the world. Secondly, there is a reason that the world hates us. It's because of our non-compromising conviction that Jesus is the Christ. He's the only way. We will be judged one day. What we think and what we believe matters. We cannot live like a sinner and die like a saint. Righteousness, the letter of John says, is to be practiced. Practicing sin is of the devil, so a choice has to be made. Jesus or the world, Jesus or sin, Jesus or the devil. And those blinded or deceived only see fun in the devil. They'll stand right behind him. The world isn't moving, it's staying with the devil. So for the relationship between the church and the world to get better... Discouraged leaders decide to move the church closer to the world, and that never works. Only the devil wins. Third, there are some who see the mission of the church to do just what Jesus did. The Lord fed 5,000, so the church should. In some ways, that may seem logical, but remember, the Lord is the head, not the church. So the Lord also healed people, so the church built hospitals. Clinics and doctors have doctors on staff to care for people for free. Uh, Jesus turned over tables, uh, and he... Uh, Tables of those you thought were doing wrong, should the church be doing that as well? Do we rush into a synagogue and trash the place? Do we get our whips and drive people out? The authorization of the church must be found in what God told the church to do. Jesus never owned a home. Can disciples own a home? Jesus was never married or had children. Can disciples? The actions of Jesus were to demonstrate that he was the Messiah and he had all authority. The church isn't the Messiah and the church doesn't have all authority. Yes, the world hates you. It's a reality moment. One by one, as we show the gospel to others, hearts are changed and lives are saved. Changing just to get people to like us is actually selling out. The proper says, buy truth and do not sell it. There was a lot there, a lot of what was said there, but that's what I appreciate is the fact you can't justify the ends by the means. 
Look at the good that's being done here. I know it may not be what the Bible teaches. We may not have an example. There may not be authority. But look at the good that can be done. King Saul tried to reason that way. I, I know you told me not to do this, but look at the way I'm going to worship you through keeping these animals alive. What God wants is not empty worship. What God wants is not merely good deeds. God wants us to obey him, to follow his will, to follow his rules. And that means that there's a lane for the individual and a lane for the church, and we need to stay in our lane. There are passages about doing good, absolutely so, and we need to do so. But there is a massive difference between putting money in a plate and saying this church is going to be busy and good deeds that we do here. It's our ministry and me going out and busting tables, and me going out and serving those who are in need. There's a world of difference between an institution, a church, building an orphanage, and me adopting orphans into my home. I can pretend that I can put money in a plate of a congregation that's building an orphanage, and I'm applying James 1.27, but until you take that orphan into your home and you provide them what they need, that has not been done. It's not the same. So what are you saying? Serve. Serve. The purpose of this church is very clear. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's the mission of God's people. Teach the truth. Reach the lost. Help the saved grow closer to Jesus. What about those who are in need around me? That's my job. Mine. That's my responsibility. And that's yours. Individual Christians. Well, I'm looking more for a church that cares for the poor. That's really important to me. I want a church that cares for the poor. Do you realize what this congregation does here? Well, I don't see anything of it. I don't see our members going out and serving because our members are applying Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We're not jumping on Facebook saying, look at all the ways I've served people. We're not posting on our website, look at our ministries and all the way we serve the world. You know why? Because we're just busy serving the world. You would be amazed at all the ways how generous and active and serving each one of you are. And you know it. And get caught up in that way of thinking of the world. That we want to make the world like us. The most important thing is to follow the pattern. Yep, that pattern involves love and service, but it also involves being devoted to the things King Jesus taught. The teachings of the apostles. Fellowship in the bread. Just getting in right here. If you're driving and you're on the, and the, on the road, we've got this fancy car now that we bought that if I, if I start to swerve, it corrects me. And I don't like that. If I want to swerve, let me swerve. Don't, don't, don't correct me. But sometimes what will happen is this little automated swerving mechanism will go too much. We're f I'm fighting against the car, and so it's starting to swerve, and it just jolts that car back. I'm waiting for the day I'm going to get pulled over and say, Officer, it literally was not me. <laughs> it was the car. Let's be careful this morning. Our natural inclination may be to jerk the wheel, to go from one extreme to the other, when all we need may be a little correction. That if I'm leaning one way, let's make a correction. A correction in the way I'm thinking about this. We had a lot to think about this morning, and I know we went through a lot in a short amount of time. We want to talk, let's talk more about it. But this is what it's about. If I, can I just have you 40 real quick, whoever's up there? One more? Yep, great. Just keep going, just keep forwarding until, great. If I'm in the law, move towards love. 
If I'm in love, I'm moving towards law. And here's reality. In doing so, we're moving more like Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Let Jesus be our guide. Let the Word of God be our mirror. Let's look to our hearts and let's take a step closer to Jesus. A balanced heart. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.